Hey, good morning. How are you? Good morning to you. Do you need a hand? Is that or the balloons secure? Uh huh. No. Yeah, my hand. Thank you. Cause Got I it. get this one. Holding on. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we're outside of Queens Hospital, which is a part of the New York City Health and Hospitals Corporation, which is the city's public hospital system. Because in August, uh, Denise Williams uh, was uh, seeking care for postpartum depression or anxiety, and uh, her family was informed two days later that she had died. It was a cold, windy January morning when my producer, Teresa, and I arrived at Queens Hospital Center in New York City. Uh, so we've been gathering somewhat regularly outside of the hospital since then to demand answers and to, um, to say her name and to make sure the city knows that it matters that we're watching. A group of about 10 to 15 people were gathered in front of the hospital, holding bright purple signs and a dozen purple balloons. After all, Denise loved the color purple. The signs they held read, Denise Williams should be here, Black Mamas Matter, and Justice for Denise. The crowd of family, friends, and activists had come together on what would have been Denise's 30th birthday. They were there to celebrate her life and to mourn her loss. Three-year-old Aviana releases the purple balloons, which are quickly carried high into the sky by the winter winds. Aviana is Denise's daughter, and even at three years old, she is aware enough to miss her mama. She will carry memories of Denise that her new baby sister, Adelaide, won't be able to. Y'all cold? Yeah. All right, I'm just checking in. It, it takes something to stand out here on in the middle of a winter day and um, rally for justice. It takes something. But when I think about our ancestors, all of our ancestors, whether they identify as black or brown or they identify as white, um, This is Color Code, a podcast from STAT. I'm Nicholas St. Fleur, a science and health reporter here. In over eight episodes, I'm taking a look at the hidden and not-so-hidden forces behind our country's stark racial health inequities. This is episode four, where we're discussing America's black maternal mortality crisis. Okay, so Denise, um, honestly, I think what I can say about my sister is she is and was a loving, caring person. She was smart. That's Belinda, Denise's sister. She was intelligent. She loved music. She loved dancing. She loved drawing. Um, she was the light of the party. You know, she can walk in a room with her crazy laugh. She would light up the whole room. Um Nisi was the type of person, if you went to her and asked her for something, it wouldn't be a question. She would just automatically do it. I think if you guys had the opportunity to meet Denise, I think what would stick with you would be her laugh and the fact that she loves people. So 
After Denise's death, Belinda is helping raise Aviana and nine-month-old Adelaide. Oh, Lord, her kids. I can say they are just angels from every aspect of the world. Um, Looking at them, like, Aviana is her twin. And when I say her twin, it's down from her smell, literally to the hairstyles I put in her hair, you know, the face expressions. There's not a data that doesn't go past that, you know, I don't see her mother, their mother inside of them. Now, Adelie, although she, you know, she only had, you know, a couple of short weeks with her mother, she's a splitting image of her mother. My sister loved music. My sister loved to sing. And one thing about Adelie, for her to be seven months right now, going on eight next Friday, that baby has, she she holds a tune. So if I sing a song, she's right with me just trying to mumble at literally six or seven months. And I find that to be funny because... It's been an emotional, restless, and frustrating time for Belinda as she takes over care of her nieces and grieves her sister, who she lovingly calls Nisi. When she tried to speak at the rally in January, it was an incredibly difficult experience. Um, I just want to thank everybody again for coming out. Um, I woke up crying because today is my sister's 30th birthday. And I have her two babies to raise. Let me shake it off. Um, I just want my sister to know that um, we have her back. We're going to continue to have her back. Myself, my family, and my husband is going to continue to help raise these two babies. Um, we're not going to miss it. We talked again a couple of weeks afterwards over Zoom. Um, leading up to the months, um, Nisi, Denise was my sister, but <sighs> give me a second. I'm sorry. I'm just alone. Belinda noticed that Denise was showing symptoms of depression while she was pregnant this time around. Denise would tell her family about how she was feeling mentally and emotionally. And after she gave birth to Adelaide in July, that depression appeared to become much worse. Leading up to the months of my sister's death, I would say, you know, she surrounded herself by family. You know, out the blue, she would just call us and be like, oh, let's go out to eat. Let's talk. You know, she would ask us, was she a great mom? Like, you know, I felt like she was second guessing herself. And it's like, wait a minute. Why would you be second guessing yourself when you do everything with your kid? You know, so leading up to the months, maybe, you know, I think she knew she was she she was going through it. But we were there to support her, not realizing the impact of you know, that it was this severe, you know. By late August, Denise's depression had worsened. The day that my sister, you know, um, went to the hospital, I'll say she was just having like a little episode and we just wanted to make sure that she was okay. So, you know, we sent her to the hospital. We called the ambulance. The ambulance came. Um, We wanted her, we wanted her to go to the hospital of her choice, which was considered LIJ. Um, obviously, you know, with the ambulance, um, they didn't want to take her there. So they took her to Queens Hospital for um, evaluation. So she was there, I'll say, for a day. Uh, um, and the hospital called basically saying, oh, so we're going to release her the next day. Apparently, they called us say everything, everything looks good. Um, we're going to release her the next day. So my mom is like, no, we, I would like for you to keep her overnight just to make sure everything's okay. Um, 
We get a phone call the next day. Denise and Belinda's mother missed a call from the hospital early that morning. They tried to call back, but they couldn't get a hold of anyone. When the phone rang again around noon, several hours later, it wasn't a nurse or one of her doctors who called. It was the medical examiner. To their shock, he was calling to tell them that they were preparing to do an autopsy. At the time, my mom is thinking, they said biopsy. She was like, biopsy, okay, I'll be there tomorrow. And he was like, no, autopsy. That's when my mom screamed, dropped the phone, and like, hey, autopsy, how can it be? You guys just called me telling me that my daughter was going to be released the day before. Belinda and her mom rushed to the hospital. Once there, they demanded answers about Denise's death from anyone and everyone that they could. But no one was providing them with any information. Belinda said they felt as if they were being misdirected by the staff. And this evasion, it compounded the pain and the confusion that they were dealing with surrounding Denise's death. There was nothing. It was beating around the bush, no direct answers. It was like there was nothing that they said to me, my mom, my aunts, to reassure us, you know, that my sister died in peace. Denise's family did eventually learn an official cause of death, but that didn't provide closure. Well, concrete is what they so-called said is she passed from a pulmonary embolism. Um, before that, they, they tried to say it was natural causes, and then they changed it to that. A quick note that we did reach out to Queens Hospital Center about Denise's case, but did not receive a response. Denise's story and her family's story in the wake of her death, it's, it's just heartbreaking. It was first reported on extensively by local New York news outlet The City in collaboration with The Fuller Project, about a month after her death. Unfortunately, this kind of story is not as rare as it should be. Black birthing people are three to four times more likely to die during or after childbirth in the United States compared with their white peers. It's an epidemic that survivors, mourners, activists, policymakers, really just, just so many people have been working to address. The United States is the only industrialized nation that has a rising maternal mortality rate and has for several years now. But what we see when we pull back the layers and look at things by race is that um, what's contributing to that rising maternal mortality rate in the United States is the fact that Black birthing people are at uh, three to four times greater risk of experiencing maternal mortality. That's Rachel Hardiman. I am a mother um, to an eight-year-old daughter. I'm a wife. Uh, I'm a scholar. I uh, serve as the as an associate professor and the Blue Cross Endowed Professor of Health and Racial Equity at the University of Minnesota School of Public Health. I knew I wanted to talk to Rachel about this. We've spoken together on panels about this issue, and I've always found it insightful how she leverages data and statistics to tell the human side of this tragedy. So that there's a couple of different definitions of maternal mortality. So some, the WHO, the World Health Organization, defines it as death with during pregnancy or within 42 days after um, giving birth. But really, we, um, as public health folks, tend to look at the entire year postpartum because it's important um, to understand and these things can happen um, 
quite a ways out from that the initial pregnancy and childbirth. What I mean, it takes nine months to grow an infant and give birth, right? So how do we expect someone to recover from that in, um, in only six weeks? The disparities seen between Black birthing people and other races have deep roots. We have to really understand the history of our country 400 plus years ago, right? It really started in 1619 with the formation of chattel slavery in the United States and the enslavement of Black, um, black people and Black birthing people in particular, because that set um, our country on a history and on a pathway and um, set up a legacy of racism in our country. That's a really huge concept for people to sort of wrap their head around. That's something, you know, that's something that happened 400 years ago, right, um, is contributing to current, um, current data around inequities. But the reason that is, is because racism shows up in so many different ways over, over time. So, um, so the weathering hypothesis is a really important part of understanding this. And what that means is that throughout um, the lives of Black folks, and particularly Black birthing people, when you have this cumulative disadvantage due to structural inequity across the life course. So as even, you know, we're talking from childhood through, you know, adolescence and into adulthood, that cumulative disadvantage sort of has this wearing and tearing on the body so that by the time um, a Black birthing person becomes pregnant, their body is already sort of disadvantaged in ways that make them um, at greater risk for these adverse outcomes like maternal um, uh, mortality and morbidity. What do you find through these several conversations is the most impactful thing that you say or that, you know, someone else in, in this community says to people who have no idea about this, 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 this crisis that really shakes them into action or shakes them into caring? How, how do you get people to care? I often talk about the fact that it's racism, not race. That is the risk factor for Black maternal health outcomes. Um, and what I mean by that is we often will talk about, well, Black women or Black birthing people um, are this, you know, are X, Y, and Z, right? Are, are at greater risk. And um, it's not, we're not talking about the process behind what's happening. And so I think it's important for people to understand that it's not that Black people aren't going to um, their prenatal care appointments. It's not that b- Black people are at greater risk or are, are more likely to use tobacco or other substances during pregnancy. Because once we strip all of that away and look at, um, and look at the, the numbers, we still see that Black birthing people are at greater risk. And, that, um, and therefore, it's not about um, Black race. The disparities around maternal mortality are clear and well-documented. I've now interviewed many people for this podcast and for other stories I've written who have lost loved ones in childbirth. And so, like many other survivors and activists, when there's a clear, shared sense of injustice, people come together to fight it. When that plane hit that grill, they, they had they saw us and said, meet me at the hospital. And we went to the hospital. That's Charlene McGee. Denise's aunt. She's been the lead organizer around the gatherings for Denise and in creating a nonprofit in her name. We stood in front of that hospital and I pleaded my family, not just me, 
My family pleaded for answers, pleaded for help. And I'm going to tell you that the community, those are the people who have been sharing the story, who have been inquiring about um, what happened to Denise. We've been, my family have met so many wonderful families who have gone through the same exact thing as Denise. After Denise's death, her family was desperate to understand how a young, healthy person could die so suddenly. And to their surprise, a community of families who have also lost loved ones to this same tragedy sprang into action. It's about half a dozen people who attend every protest and every demonstration so that they can raise awareness around any type of action that might help the family. If I didn't love you all before, I, I love y'all deep. Like for real deep. Like we are family and we're so connected. Shawnee, my God. I always call you Dr. Shawnee. Like you know that's literally in my phone. <laughs> At the January protest in front of Queens Hospital, members of this makeshift family spoke out. When you're chosen, when God chooses you, without your permission, without your permission, we are all chosen. Bruce, we're chosen. The pain is unbearable. But when God cho chooses you, he gives us the the strength to, to carry on and to, to move forward. I just want to say, um, just thank you to everybody. It is a beautiful thing that we don't, we don't have to be on this journey by ourselves. Um, what I'm gonna do right now is I'm going to introduce I'm going to introduce the board members. We know that Shimani Gibson should be here. We know that Amber Rose Isaac should be here. We know that Kira Johnson should be here. Say so over names. and over say. and over, we have to say their names. Let's say their names together. Denise Williams. Denise, Denise Williams. Williams. Amber Rose Isaac. Amber Rose Isaac. Shimani Gibson. Shimani Gibson. Kira Johnson. Kira Johnson. This goes on and on. We can do better. We must do better. This is Omari Maynard was preparing for the joyful arrival of a new child and instead found himself thrown into the terror and grief of profound loss. He now raises his two-year-old son without his partner, Shimoni. You know, being in a position when you lose your partner, somebody you wake up every day with, you go to sleep, you know, you go to bed with every night, and then not having that, um, it's, it's life-changing, right? So again, like I said, I go through, you know, just a bouts of emotion on a daily basis, right? He shows up for Denise Williams' family because her family and others show up for him. How we got in contact with Denise Williams' family is through uh, Bruce McIntyre. So Bruce lost his partner, um, Amber Isaac Rose, in 2020, uh, probably about maybe six to eight months um, after my partner, Shimani Gibson, passed. And we 
you know, cultivated a relationship together. We Basically, we fellowship. We do things together. Um, I, I, I say all of that because there's a big need, right? And um, especially with, you know, anything, but specifically with maternal health, um, is that, you know, we, we, we commune, right? And we support each other because, you know, these experiences are just so devastating. You need support. Um, and you need other people who, you know, you may not even know support you because of the fact that you guys all kind of have this shared experience. And, you know, it's something that is super powerful to come together. So when I found out, when he told me that he was doing this rally for Denise, he's been doing a couple of rallies with them. You know, I, you know, of course, was like, you know, anything you need, I'll be there. This has become their new calling showing up for their family, the ones who share their pain. You know, to show, you know, our solidarity and support in that, this is a real thing. You know, we're not going to be standing next to you for, you know, a five-minute photo op. Like, this is a very, you know, real issue for us, you know. And understanding that, you know, families need to come together to, again, cultivate and create this new community um, is, is, you know, is, is paramount. Paramount. So Omari is on this journey with Shawnee Gibson, his partner's mother. It's just part of the work um, that we respond when um, folks experience this type of loss and we step up and cover them um, because we were blessed to be covered in that way when we experienced our loss and still are covered in that way. Um, so when Bruce asks for us to show up somewhere and vice versa, when we ask him to show up somewhere, we do that. Um, there's strength in numbers. And because of the nature of the work, it can be very exhausting standing alone. I actually feel that if there isn't consistency, if we don't consistently show up, then folks go back to their regularly scheduled programming. Um, that's the hospital staff. That's our community. And um, this may sound controversial, but even the folks who've experienced the loss, it's like we're so used to as black and brown folks, um, um, so used to taking sucker punches, like being mistreated. Sometimes we even miss it when it's happening because it's just such the norm, like the microaggressions that we experience day to day. Um, I forget who the author is, but talked about the, the, t the thousands of tiny little cuts that have us hemorrhaging, right? And so if we don't consistently show up in the cold, in the rain, in the heat, um, then they'll forget, we'll forget, and this will continue. So there's certain there's certain key kind of components to this, right? So this is not the first hospital that we've had to stand in front of, you know. Um, so uh, uh, and I say that to say, like, it's, 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 a, it's, it's an epidemic, right? This is a systematic failure you know um i've this is about maybe the fourth fifth hospital that i've had to stand in front of and protest and rally and and you know advocate and, and you know just be supportive from so it's, this is not something that's happening um you know in pockets or you know this is something that's happening across the kind of the, across the spectrum has failed my niece and they are continuing to fail women of color. We say something is wrong with us, it's, it's, it's ignored. No one is 
is listening and we are dying my life, my family's life, Denise, most importantly, Denise's children, lives have changed. Um, I have become an advocate. I'm taking classes right now and as we speak, I have a three o'clock class. I'm going to be a doula, a doula, sorry. My life has um, completely, completely changed. I, as uh, Denise's aunt, as Aviana's auntie and Adelie's auntie, this is a lifelong commitment for me. Um, I'm going to utilize my resources, my time to fight for my two baby nieces who lost their mother. The family is trying to move forward while keeping Denise in their hearts. And my sister would always buy them things, but I don't know. My sister bought her this one particular teddy bear, and it sings this song. And I'm going to try not to cry. Wherever you are, wherever you be, I will be right there for you. So my niece knows. Sorry, guys. Anytime my niece says she, you know, I miss mommy because I talk about my sister all the time. I show her pictures. You know, I don't want her to forget who her mother is, but she has this teddy bear that she bought her. And when you press the hands, it sings. So anytime she thinks of her mother, she'll be like, auntie, I miss mommy. She grabs the teddy bear. She hugs it. She's like, auntie, hug it with me. And then we just start singing the song together. So honestly, that's what helps my niece get through it. She understands, but I don't think she, she understands that mommy is gone. But being three, three years old, it's kind of hard to understand that she's not coming back. But with that, with that safety blanket, which is her teddy bear that sings, it's, it's a saving grace for her because it, it melts her heart and it makes her feel good knowing that mommy is here in spirit, although she's not here in sight. I'm sorry. But um, it's, it's, it, it hasn't been easy. It hasn't been easy. You know, I can't replace my sister, but I could be the best aunt that I can be to these two beautiful babies. If there's one thing that does give me hope in the face of this crisis in our country, it's that finally Black maternal mortality is getting the recognition it deserves at the highest levels of government through something known as the Momnibus Act. It's a series of about a dozen or so bills aimed at eliminating this, 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 these disparities we see uh, that black women and black birthing people face. And it's being championed by people like Vice President Kamala Harris and Representative Lauren Underwood and Representative Alma Adams and Representative Ayanna Presley and Senator Cory Booker. I've been reporting a bit on this, the Momnibus Act, and watching representatives come together to protect black women, to protect black birthing people. It's heartening. <laughs> it's impressive to see. And, and just earlier um, in April, we had uh, 
Black Maternal Health Week, where we had warriors, if you will, for, 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 for black maternal health come together, whether they be politicians or, or midwives or researchers or physicians, and, and, and share what they've learned about this crisis, but also share more about what can be done. The champions are there. The lives of black women and the lives of black birthing people matter. listening and being part of our Color Code community. Our team here at STAT is Alyssa Ambrose, Hyacinth Empanado, Teresa Gaffney, Crystal Milner, and me, Nick St. Fleur. Kevin Seaman is our engineer, and Tino Delamassed is our intern. Our theme music is by Brian Joel. Special thanks to Charlene McGee, Melinda Staley, and the entire family of Denise Williams. And thanks to Dr. Rachel Hardiman, Omari Maynard, Shawnee Benton Gibson. Thanks to the Commonwealth Fund for supporting this podcast. After every episode, we'll have a bunch of photos and some more reading related to the episode's topic at statnews.com. So please, go check it out. We'll have a new episode in two weeks. If you like the podcast, please leave a review and subscribe. And if you have any thoughts for us, you can reach us at colorcode at statnews.com. Thank you.